0: The day that I graduated seminary is still a blur to me. I really don't remember anything that happened that day except it was very cold and rainy. And I was ready for this to be over. I wanted my sheet of paper and I wanted to drive back to Lexington. I think we had a ball game that night. And I was thinking uh, much more about that than the sermon Dr. Moeller was preaching that day. I was thinking more about that than the songs that were being sung. It was almost a decade of theological education that was coming to an end and I was ready to be done. I wanted the prize, the sheet of paper that said I had a master's degree and I was done with this stuff. I had spent eight semesters of Greek, three semesters of Hebrew. And the, the, the Greek, I, I, I sat there that day and I remembered the, the the Greek that I took. Eight semesters because the Bible college that I went to made a mistake. And I had to take twice as much Greek as was required. And I sat there and I thought about the professors and I thought about the mentors that I had had and yet still it was much more uh, than what I had learned in the classroom. I remembered on that day as Pastor David was there, I remembered a moment in my office in Lexington when I said, why am I doing this? I was driving uh, to, to Louisville three to four days a week just trying to finish up because the credits I needed, I couldn't get any other time, so I had to take classes three or four days a week. Uh, one class, Old Testament, I took with Todd Martin. We'd get home at midnight, then get up the next morning, drive back over. And I remember all of that and just thinking, why am I doing this? I told Pastor David that day, I'm already doing what I want to do. I'm a pastor. I don't want to do it. There's no, And he was like, you're finishing or you're fired and I thought about that day and I was glad that I finished but but as I think about that day and I think about graduating people ask me when did you graduate from seminary and I have no idea I cannot remember the date you can go and look on my degree in the office there and tell me when because I don't remember even what year it was but what, one thing I do remember about that day, and I have a picture that I constantly look at. It's in a frame at our house, and it's uh, on my computer. I remember this picture often. That's basically all I remember is, is being with my wife on that day and thinking about all that God had done in our life over the last decade. I remember meeting her on the steps at Southeastern Bible College, which she claims that she remembers that night, but I don't think she remembers even seeing me for the first time. My roommate introducing us Uh, on that day, we had had, we had four kids. Uh, at that point, we, we had yet to adopt Jonah and Isaac from Ethiopia, and, and I remember the struggle of moving. I, I, I remember back at Raleigh Avenue Baptist Church. I've only pastored at Avenue Baptist Churches, but I remember... Uh, I remember the time there making it, working full-time and getting about $13,000 a year and then Titus being born and trying to figure out how are we going to make this work, living on basically nothing for about two or three years. I remember leaving Birmingham and moving to Lexington and wondering what in the world that was going to look like. And as I sat there that day, I thought more about what God had done in our lives through the process. For me, it really wasn't about the prize, the degree, it was about the process. And I remember, I'm glad I didn't quit. I'm glad I didn't stop. Now, many of us are here today and we are thinking about the prize we're, we're thinking about that degree. Some of us are in college, and we're thinking, I just got to get these, these classes out. I just got to take the next class. I got to get through it. I got to get through it. I got to get the degree and, and, and get, get, get a job, and, and I've got to get into the real world. And we're thinking about what's ahead of us constantly, the promotion, getting married, retirement. We're thinking about what's next, and we fail to see what God is doing in the process. We want the prize without the process. We want to just be handed the sheet of paper. We want to be handed the reward. And what we've seen in the book of Numbers is that's not the way God works. He promises Israel the land. He promises them what he's going to give them. And he takes them through this process of learning and growing and figuring out what it means to live as sons. What it means to live as sons in the wilderness. And that's what makes the promise the promise. After 40 years, we come to our text and we begin to see this son moving out as a warrior in the wilderness. Instead of whining, instead of complaining here, we finally see Israel into this mature person. This mature community. Instead of longing to go back to Egypt, we find them charging out, taking the land that God had promised them. And remember the report of the spies. There are giants out there. This will never happen And as we come to our text, we find Israel, in light of what God has done for them, in light of the declaration, the banner that they are carrying with them, the serpent's head on a stick, they are ready to charge out and face the giants, to face, to conquer the giants ahead of them. Notice in our text, beginning in verse 16, they continued to, Beer, now this is not a brewery, this is a well, as he says here, that is a well which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. Now here we begin to see in this section the pace is picking up. They are being led by God from one spot to another in the wilderness. They are east of the Jordan River where they will live the remainder of their time before they enter the promised land. And here they find themselves in a dry riverbed. And what does God say to them? Gather them together because I'm about to give them water in this desert. And notice, he gathered the people together. And notice what they do. Then Israel sang this song Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that princes made, that nobles of the people dug with scepter and staff. Do you see the difference in these people? Instead of whining and complaining, instead of looking around, going, Okay, where's the water? You know, we got to have water to live out here in the wilderness. We got to have water if we're going to fight these battles. They're trusting the Lord. And they are singing in light of his provision. They need it water for life. They need it water for battle. Now, for us that's foreign to as we go and we turn on the sink and there's water. We even complain about the water that we have in our faucets. And we've got to have purifying systems to make it better. You don't want that water, there's too much calcium in it. But if you've ever been to a country, for instance, Cordova, three months out of the year it rains so they can feed their Animals, so that they can live. Every morning at 6 30, the whole village has to get up and they turn the water on at 6 30. And they run out there with their bottles and their buckets to get water for the day, and then they turn it off. And if water runs out before the next rainy season, there's just no water. Here, Israel, they're not living in cities. They're they're not living in places where there are faucets or even well. They are living in tents, moving from each river to each river to each place. And here they're in a dry river bed and God declares to them, I will provide what you need. And instead of whining and complaining, they begin to sing. And notice the last part of the song that is recorded here. The well that princes made, that nobles of people dug with scepters and their staffs. You have a bunch of slaves out in the wilderness singing like they are kings, singing like they are rulers. My, how things have changed for Israel. Notice even as we move down into verse 19, they find themselves on Mount Pisgah. And then verse 20, at Bathmoth, the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah, looking down on the desert, looking down on the wilderness. They find themselves on a mountain looking out at the desert, probably being able to glance over at the land God had promised, and they declare themselves to be kings, slaves who are sons who are declaring to themselves that they are rulers in worship. Now, we see the importance here of worship. It would be easy for them to allow themselves to drift into what they don't have, and yet they are singing, they are forcing themselves to remember the promise in song. That's the same thing we do, or we should be doing on a weekly basis. We come in here today, and many of us don't feel like singing. But we are thinking about chaos, we are thinking about the clutter of our lives, and yet God calls us together to sing. Actually, the first song that we sung today was a command to rejoice. We even see that with the Apostle Paul in Philippians who is in jail, and he commands the people to rejoice, to have joy, even when they don't feel like it. First of all, joy is not a feeling. It's a commanded disposition that you are to have before God that is displayed in worship. We see that throughout the Psalms. The psalmist is in battle. Things around him are falling apart. And what does he do in Psalm 103? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So he steps out of himself and he commands his soul to bless the Lord. It's not a feeling, then what does he say? And forget not all his benefits. The psalmist says, in light of what God has done for you, you praise the Lord. He says that to himself. And at times we've got to look into the mirror and remind ourselves what God is doing for us. And even force ourselves to sing. Force ourselves to have joy and trust the Lord. That's why corporate worship is so important in our lives. If you isolate yourself, I guarantee you, you will become selfish because the only person you have to think about is you and you get alone and you fixate on your problems and you become grumpy and you become grouchy and you, and and you become, you begin to think things are falling apart. Things are so hard for me. And that's why you have to gather with other people and you have to look around and say, there are more people on this planet than just me. And you have to consider, I know what's going on in their life. I know the struggle in their life. I know they lost their job. I know what's going on in her. I've been praying for her. And you are reminded that this life isn't just about you. The presence and then even the sounds of others remind you that you are to sing. As you sing out, you are calling others to join your voice and remember the gospel. That's so why we do this together. One of the things I've noticed in churches that are are dying is worship. You know, they come in and, Pastor, you got to preach better sermons. Sermons are 25 minutes, that's too long. We gotta shorten the sermon down. You know, people don't listen to sermons that long. You gotta pep it up in here. We need a new outreach program. Pastor, what are you gonna do to get more folks in here? And the issue at the end of the day is your worship is pathetic. That's why you're dying. And it's not the style. See, immediately those of us in here thought about style. Yeah, they're probably saying old. No, 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 no. The issue is delight in the gospel. And echoing that with your voice. And what we see with the people of God is that draws others to see the greatness of God. We want you to come to the well and taste and see that the gospel is good. We want you to come to the well. And if our church is full of whininess and complaining, even in the wilderness, folks want to see in this present age, in this present order, that you can still sing, that you can still have joy. And the church is the declaration in the wilderness that sons can sing in light of the promise. But notice not only are they singing in the wilderness, they are moving out. They are conquering and even taunting these giants that they face. Verse 21, that Israel sent messengers to Sion. The king of the Amorites. Now this was probably noted one of the most powerful kings at that time. The Amorites were the mightiest of all the Canaanites. It was known of that day. And he had already conquered this place. He had already overthrown the Moabites and laid this area that Israel is moving toward to waste. He he had already conquered it for himself. But notice, again, as we saw in Edom, verse 22, they send a representative that says, let me pass through your land. Again, notice Israel is referred to in the singular. Let me pass through your land. God's son, we will not turn aside into the field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of the well. And remember again the growth there. Once whining and complaining about no food, whining and complaining about no drink, they know and they remember the faithfulness of God. God will provide water even in the wilderness. God will provide the food that we need. They look King Sion in the face and say, we don't need your food. We don't need your land. We are on the way to the promised land. We will go by the king's highway. This would have been the interstate, the bypass during that time. Until we have passed through your territory, but notice again, but Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. Now we begin to think, okay, back to Edom, the king of Edom. Gathers his people, will not let them through. And as we saw in the last chapter, Israel doesn't back down. They begin to push forward because of faithfulness, uh, the faithfulness of God. But this enemy comes against Israel. And what do they do? Verse 24, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Arnon to Jabok. This would have been the, the most powerful king known at this time in this area as far as the Ammonites. For the border of the Ammonites was strong and Israel took all the cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and all of its villages. Here we see Israel has turned into this mighty warrior. These slaves, these nomads who had no land, this tent village has all of a sudden defeated this giant powerful king and take possession of his land. Imagine Sion, notice these little puny, wimpy nomads coming toward his city, the great city of Heshbon. And he goes out and basically Israel says, listen, let us come through or we're going to wipe you out. And you imagine the laughter, you imagine the humor that goes on here. Probably the same thing that Pharaoh did. As Moses stood before him and stammered, and he said, let my people go. And over and over again, Pharaoh refused. What happened to Pharaoh? He was wiped out. And we hear, again, we see the warning that comes to this king in the person of these nomads, these slaves. And now he has overthrown their city. The same thing Jesus did. You have Jesus walking around this poor Rabbi, carpenter's son. The text says he had no place to lay his head. He was known as a drunkard and a glutton because of the people he hung out with. And he's walking around saying the kingdom of God is at hand. In his person, the presence and the authority of God is at hand. And how did that end for him? There was unbelief. There was the rejection of his authority. But we see in the cross and we see in the resurrection, God defeats the enemies of God. This poor peasant nobody. Same thing's going on in the wilderness. Same thing goes on as you declared the gospel. People look at this group of people in this makeshift worship area and we gather here and we say, here, the kingdom of God is at hand. We read the news headlines and we see how we see the direction of our country. We see the direction of the world and the tendency is to cower. The tendency is to be scared. The tendency is to back down. And yet what God has declared in Jesus and if we are in Jesus in the church, the presence of God, the presence of the kingdom is at hand. And we turn to the world and we say, and your kingdom will be overthrown if you do not bow to our king. If you do not submit. We are making our way through this territory. And we are calling all other powers to submit to the authority of King Jesus. It's the same thing we do in evangelism. Notice the authority here. He warns the king, you are about to be overthrown. He gives him this option, the same thing Moses did to Pharaoh, and we see this over and over. Bow to the king. Bow to the king's people as we move through. It's the same thing we do when we call people to repent and follow Jesus. You see, when we think about evangelism, we so often think of ourselves as salesmen i got to have the right trick. i got to have the right gimmick. You know, give me this Rubik's Cube thing. Give me a soccer ball. Give me a bracelet. Give me, give me something. And not, those things aren't bad. Give me. We, we now have apps. Here, let me pull out my app and, and share. And those things aren't bad as long as we realize we're not salesmen. We are, as Paul said, ambassadors. We represent the authority of Christ's kingdom that is moving through. And we're not psychologists. Sometimes we begin to think if I could just get into your brain and trick you into becoming a Christian, then it would all make sense and all your problems would go away. That's not who we are. We are ambassadors of another kingdom, and we are not called to defend Jesus as king. We are called to declare him as king. See, there's a difference. We don't defend the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. The people of Israel aren't defending. They they don't come up with an apologetics course for King Sion. Well, well, let me give you the evidence that we are God's people. Because King Sion would look on them and laugh. You're ridiculous. That that makes no sense. You've been living out in the wilderness and you're poor. Your people have been swallowed by the earth. You don't have anything to your name. No, they say, we are God's people in light of the promise. And in light of an empty tomb, we declare Jesus as Lord. And some of you might say, oh, well, we're supposed to give a reason for the hope within us. The reason for the hope within us is Jesus isn't dead any longer. And we declare that. So many of us, we think about sharing the gospel. We put ourselves on the defensive. We respond to what others say. And we're not to be jerks, but we are to declare that this is true. And here's a, just a helpful tip. When someone says, why is the Bible not true? Well, let me get my Josh McDowell more than a carpenter. Let me get all this stuff out. I'll be back with you. with it. And all those things are helpful. Just ask them, why is it not true? I don't have to be on the defensive. You're the one that's rejecting the authority of God. You tell me why the Bible's not true. Well, give me a reason. You give me a reason for the lack of hope within you. Well, Jesus isn't the only way of salvation. Well, how do you know? You'd explain that to me. We we declare an authoritative kingdom that is moving through. But notice, not only do they defeat this king, notice the result of their defeat. They defeat this powerful king who has already defeated the Moabites and taken his land, and then they turn around and notice verse 27 the ballad singers. So you're marching through the wilderness, you're defeating these kings, and all of a sudden you start a band. And notice what they begin to sing Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sion be established. They are making fun of this king they just defeated. This is their Toby Keith Angry American except it's not a boot, it's a sandal. Some of you know what I'm talking about if you listen to country music. Basically, they are saying, come back and build this city, Sihon. You you overthrew the Moabites with your sword. Look what we've done to you. Your city needs to be built. It needs to be established. Notice verse 28, for fire came out of Heshbon. We lit it up like the 4th of July. I'll stop there because y'all are thinking more about country music, trying to remember the song. The flame from the city of Sihon. Fire came out from the, the centerpiece, the focal point of his kingdom, the foundation, the refuge of his kingdom. We blew it up. There is fire and it devoured R of Moab. It is devouring his territories. Our rule, these nomads, these slaves are ruling over this king's territory. They're taking over and it swallowed the heights of Arnon. We're taking all of his territory away. We're taking the Amorites' territory away. We're taking the Ammonites' territory away. And then he turns and says, woe to you, Moab. <laughs> okay, we're coming for you next. We are marching through the wilderness, and they are taunting these territories. They are taunting these kings. He says, you are undone, O people of Chemosh. This would have been a Moabite god. And they begin to make fun of the god. He has made his sons fugitives, his daughters captives, to an Amorite king, Sion. Chemosh, you think you're some god? You couldn't even defend the Moabites from King Sion. Now look what we've done to King Sion. You better be scared. We are wiping folks out in the wilderness. So he through them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished. And we laid waste to Nopah. Fire spread to Medaba. Notice, they are taunting the giants. They have gone from cowering slaves to sons and kings who are taunting the other kings. Your cities and your gods are pathetic. We are about to take over. And you say, in our mealy mouth culture that we live in today, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right to taunt. It doesn't seem right to declare such power, such authority. Now, when I was in kindergarten... I remember learning the first day of kindergarten, the Battle of New Orleans, which is a song about the Confederate Army taking over in the South. It's really in a very offensive song now that I think about it. I went back and listened to it yesterday and thought, my first day, I was five years old and there's even a profanity in the song and we're playing it in kindergarten. That's strange, and it's offensive, especially to, to Yankees. I, I, I'm not going to recite any of it here today. But we, we hear this, and, and we've got to remember that battle songs are a part of who we are. At the beginning of every baseball game, football game, NASCAR event, what are we found doing? Singing the Star Spangled Banner, which is a de- declaration of victory. Which is able, we're able to stand around and say that we have these things because people fought. And look at the flag. We are victors. And that's exactly what's going on here with Israel. And as we remember the first part of the chapter, what would they have before them? This bronze serpent. This enemy's head on a stick. That will remind them as we hear that, we think, well, that's just bravado. That's just that. No, no, no. What they are reminding them themselves is God is charging out before us. God is the only one who's allowing us to do that. Look, our enemy's head is on a stick. We can't be defeated. That's why we will walk, march all the way to Moab. That's why we will march all the way into the promised land and wipe out the Canaanites. And they are turning around to these kings that represent giants that represent false gods in the wilderness, and they are declaring the authority of Jesus. And it's the same thing we do here this morning. We taunt the enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that the church is the manifold wisdom of God. The church declares the gospel in its existence to who? The forces of darkness. The powers and principalities that gather around this place today. And when we declare rejoice, when we declare kingdom undefeatable, when we declare nothing but the blood of Jesus, we are turning to the forces of darkness and we are saying you have already lost. Our enemy's head, Satan, is on a stick in the cross and resurrection. You can't defeat us. Our existence declares to Satan and the forces of darkness that they have lost. Our existence is a taunt to the enemies of God, especially when we sing. Notice they are singing here. Just remember that. They are singing. Their kids are learning this song in kindergarten. And that would have been offensive if you are a follower of King Sihon, if you are a devoted member of the cult to Chemosh, they are saying you have no authority. You have no power. And it is offensive to the forces of darkness when we gather together and say Jesus is Lord and when we can sing about it. When your life is falling apart, when there is difficulty in your marriage, when your kids will not obey, when you are frustrated, when there is death, when there is bad news, and you gather in here and you still say, Jesus is Lord. Satan hates it. It is a reminder that he has lost his power. And just as a side note, men, it's time to start singing here. If we are on the front lines of battle and we are those who lead into battle, when we read our Bibles, men lead out in singing. Now, let me be the first to tell you I can't sing a lick. When I was a teenager, I used to walk around with headphones on and just singing out. Wes King, he was one of my favorite artists. I'm singing Michael W. Smith. And my mom walked up to me one day and she pulled the headphones out and said, Would you please stop? It was awful. Clay, last week, said, you sing. You're on the front row. I hear you sing. And I thought he was going to say, and you're pretty good. By the way, Pastor Nate told me I can sing with a little little help. I'll be able to sing a little bit better. And Clay said, it's awful. (laughs) They all tell me it's awful too. But it's no excuse. We are leaders in battle, and you did not gather here today to hear me sing, thank the Lord. You gathered here to sing with me, to remind me of the gospel. I gathered here to remind you of the gospel, that we have won the battle and we declare it in song. We taunt the enemies of God in song. We declare to the world what has already happened in Jesus and what is moving through their territories. This mighty kingdom of God, we declare it in song and we charge out on mission. Notice The last part that we read earlier, Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. That's amazing. These nomad slaves with nothing to their name but some tents and all that God provided them, this tabernacle, and now they have land, the land of the Amorites, the most mighty people of the Canaanites at that time. And notice what happens. We hear the story. Moses spied out Jason. And they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites. Here they continue to move forward. But what do we know? Moses sends out spies again. And instead of cowering in what's before them, even places they had already heard about where giants live, they are moving out. And then verse 33, they get to this king Og, which by all accounts we would believe that he was a giant. They found his bed. It was like a 13-foot iron bed. This would have been a gigantic man in stature. But his kingdom stretched from Heshbon, Sion's kingdom, even out into these territories that Israel is now overcoming. And, And notice verse 34. As his army comes out against Israel... The Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him to your hand and all his people and his land. Now, we have heard that before. We have seen spies go out and come back to Israel and say, hey, there are giants. Hey, this king Og is big and his people are big. And God says to Moses, don't fear him because I've already given you his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. Verse 35, so they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivors and they possessed his land. Do you see the growth of Israel? Slaves, nomads, sons to kings who are singing and taunting the enemies of God and at this point can't be stopped. You're here today and you say, what does that have to do with me? Some of you got guns at home. Like, so we should just charge out, take over the enemies of God. What? how does that apply? We see in the Old Testament God is holy and God is righteous and he demands worship from his people. He demands worship from these Canaanites. And as he is defeating them, as he is defeating the enemies of God, there is the taunting of these gods. And what God is saying is, I demand worship, bow and submit to me. The same thing happens to Israel, though, also. When Israel moves into these lands and they begin to worship false gods, what does God do to them? He brings in the Babylonians, and they wipe out Israel. We see war in the Old Testament. God's will and even God's chastisement of his people takes place, and there is this declaration that he must be worshipped or you will be defeated. The same thing goes on here. We, we haven't been given authority as a church to charge out with swords and guns and whatever you got. I know some of you are crazy about that stuff. You're out shooting guns every weekend, and I have no idea why you have a machine gun at home. But that's your deal, and I'm glad you do it. I'm glad we live in a country where you can have as many as you want. Let me shoot it sometime, and I'll change my mind maybe. But we haven't been given the authority to take the gospel with a gun. But we have been given the authority to look at the enemies of God and say, there's a war coming. War's not over. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know of a day when God will come in and his king will ride in and the enemies who oppose him will be so wiped out. The book describes birds eating on their flesh. We read in Revelation of a day coming where Jesus will come and judge his enemies and they will begin to cry to mountains, fall on us, fall on us. We would rather face an earthquake than Jesus Christ who is Lord. And we charge out just like the people of Israel and say the authority of Jesus is marching through. Submit now or you will have to bow later. Confess him as Lord now, back from the dead. Or you will have to get down on your knees in front of him and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. We warn the nations of this. We warn the peoples of the earth with this. And as Paul says in Ephesians, our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. So we don't go out with swords and guns. But as he says in Corinthians, our weapons are not flesh and blood either. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So make no mistake about it. There is war coming and make no sense about it. You are in a war now. You're in a war right now. And we as a church have to see ourselves as soldiers in battle. Over and over, that imagery is used, even in the New Testament. We are marching out. Ephesians chapter 6. The church is this warrior who is moving out with the gospel. And that means we have to think like wartime citizens. During war, what do you do? You sacrifice and you suffer. Some of you know that full well. We're here today because you've sacrificed and you've suffered on the battlefield. The same thing happens in the context of the church. You give yourself over to a greater cause and you declare the gospel no matter what it costs you and you send the gospel out no matter what it costs you. And as we move out, we see the same authority that Jesus displayed when he spoke to sickness and he spoke disease and he spoke to death. We see the same authority of Jesus is displayed in a break room and on a college campus when someone turns and follows him as king. And we see victory and we see conquest and when we plant churches in Cordova when we plant churches in Madison County when we plant churches in Indonesia when we plant churches in China what we are saying to everyone around is Jesus is Lord and his authority is spreading from Richmond to the ends of the earth and this is the only kingdom that will last forever and if it's the only kingdom that will last forever, it is the only thing that Jesus said hell cannot prevail against. Death and the gates of Hades will not stop you. Then what are you investing your life in? What are you doing with your life? What am I doing with my life? What are we doing with our life? If we can't lose if we are already connected to the kingdom that will rule forever, why do we waste our lives on so many other things? Everybody knows what a Hummer is, right? You realize that Hummers were originally designed for what? War. And yet, in our culture over the years, what do we see? Hummers driving down the road, all blinged out, tricked out. Sound systems. There's no guns hanging off the side of them. Some of them are camouflaged. They look real cool. But we see this instrument that is designed for battle has become the prize of a peacetime culture. And yet the same thing happens with Christians. You were designed for battle. You were designed because of the gospel to say to the nations, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I wonder if people look at your life and they see more of a peacetime instrument. Instead of a sword, spear against the forces of darkness, they see a bed, a couch, plasma TV, stereo. What do they see when they look at your life? You see... The enemies of God would have stared at Israel in the wilderness and said, we got them. That's Tennessee coming to play. No big deal. That's a win on our schedule. And yet, there were heads rolling and there were kings imprisoned. Not because of their power, but the power of God. I wonder what we will do because of the power of God. Even when the world around us looks and says, They're meeting in the old AT&T building. They got water falling down every week. You know, can't they afford something better? And yet we are rolling. We are moving out with the gospel. And the gates of hell will not prevail.